0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast, in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes, at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to be speaking once again to Ashley Hay, the editor of Griffith Review, in this episode five of the Griffith Review Books, Books, Books series. Today we're going to be talking about Griffith Review 76, which is called Acts of Reckoning. It is a wide-ranging discussion of the multifaceted issues at play in Australia's fraught journey towards a full settlement with Indigenous peoples. Can its leaders take up the generous offer from Australia's Aboriginal nations to walk together to forge change through dialogue? What might be possible for Australia's narrative when reconciliation between the world's oldest continuing culture and one of its newest nation states is achieved? And what actions are necessary to move beyond words and achieve real-world transformations in Indigenous settler relations, as in other crucial areas of recalibration? Ashley, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thanks, Nick. Could you tell us a little bit about the theme of this collection and just talk a bit about what is meant by reckoning and how it's different from reconciliation?
1: Yeah, so um, there's a couple of directions to head in here. Um, the first is with Teela Reed, and Teela, we were really um, delighted that she came on board as a contributing editor for this particular edition. We worked with Taylor a couple of years ago now at the end of 2019 on her first major essay, um, which called for 2020 to be a year of reckoning, not a year of reconciliation. Um, now, as we know, 2020 wasn't quite the year that any of us expected in terms of what we could do in the world. Um, but I think this idea of the difference and the critical difference for Australia between reconciliation and reckoning is also touched on in Megan Davis's essay where she describes Reconciliation as something that can occur between groups of people who've already met. It is a coming together again. And the point is here, um, in the words of the Uluru Statement, we have never met um, properly in a lot of ways. So Teela's essay resonated very powerfully for a lot of people. And for us at Griffith Review as well at the beginning of 2020, she framed reckoning um, as the act of showing up, doing the work, you know, more than the sort of gesture towards reconciliation, um, but an actually active piece of piece of truth-telling, piece of um, reckoning is the perfect word, you know, a piece of reconsideration, um, a piece of work that needed to be done by everyone. This also has a particular resonance for Griffith's review, uh, not just through its commitment to First Nations Voices, through all of its, where are we up to now, 76 editions uh, and in the fantastic edition that Julianne Schultz and Sandra Phillips co-edited together in 2018, which was called First Things First. But also we take our name from Sir Samuel Griffith, as does Griffith University, there is particular reckoning to be done around his life and his legacy in terms of how he is remembered and celebrated and some of the ongoing impacts uh, of decisions that he made, as well as sort of looking at his his historical actions, um, and and in some cases, just uncovering them for the first time.
0: And two, two of the essays in this book, which we'll be talking about do deal specifically with that. One is by the renowned historian Henry Reynolds, mm-hmm. and mother is one, the others by David Denborough, which is in the form of a memoir called Writing Back, which is a letter to Sir Samuel Griffith. So we'll mm-hmm. be talking about those later.
1: Yeah. Um, so yes, reckoning seemed to us, this is work that Griffith Review needed to do particularly. Um, the pieces by Henry and David that we're going to talk about later are part, are there, there are four altogether in the book that look at Sir Samuel. Um, but also it was a chance to work with Teela. It was a chance to give her an opportunity to commission some voices that she felt were important to bring into this conversation. Um, It was a chance to work again with someone like Megan Davis, who uh, had a very powerful essay in First Things First, which remains one of our most popular and serially consulted essays, um, so it, it felt like a very good time. Uh, what I think was maybe most moving for us was the book was published in early May, just ahead of the federal election. Um, we, we made the book, therefore, not really knowing where we were heading in terms of the future. Um, the, the, the invitation held in the Uluru Statement, is, is, it, it resonates through so many of the pieces in this book. We knew from the audience responses to the collection in that first two or three weeks of the book being on sale that it was something that mattered phenomenally to readers. Uh, So hearing that commitment to the Uluru Statement um, by the new Prime Minister on election night was just a relief, I think, at some levels, but it just it felt like important work was now underway.
0: And so many of the pieces obviously refer to the Uluru Statement mm-hmm. and in particular to the need, the first pressing need for the, the first priority, the voice to parliament. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll be talking about that as well. Mm-hmm. Ashley, one of the things you talk about in your introduction to this book is re mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about that concept?
1: I love this word. Um, so I borrowed this from a, a wonderful academic called Shino Pinshi, who works... Um, As part of the Australian Dictionary of Biography, which uh, is a a very um, very traditional uh, academic pursuit, um, features a lot of biographies of uh, very famous white men who did things. Um, Shino is involved in in one of two projects that the Dictionary of Biography has underway. I'm not really sure which is more important here because they're both exciting pieces of work. So there is an Indigenous Dictionary of Biography which is being assembled and I think one of the things that is really exciting about it is it is called an Indigenous Dictionary of Biography rather than the Indigenous Dictionary of Biography, which, you know, sounds very tiny but actually makes an enormous point. Um, But the other project that the Australian Dictionary of Biography has underway is they are commissioning new uh, biographies for people who have already had their lives recorded so bringing new information or a contemporary lens to bear on some of these historical lives now um, restoring is this idea of just literally repopulating um, the narrative of the country and it isn't in any way removing the old narratives there is a beautiful device on the on the Australian dictionary of biography whereby for any any character who has a new biography written for them, you can still get behind the new biography to read what was there before. It's just contextualised as you know, this is what was published in 1960, this is what is published in 2021 or whatever the dates are. So I think there's something really elegant here. Um, it's a very different approach from um, the sort of blunt instrument of cancellation, which I think can be quite different and difficult, um, but it acknowledges that the way the way these stories are told, what is spoken about in these stories, whose lives are reported, the things that we know about some of these lives, all of these things are still changing. It doesn't remove the old versions, but it says we need new versions here. And I think um, to see an institution like the Australian Dictionary of Biography take on this work is incredibly exciting. Um, and yeah, I, I love this idea that it's, it's a, it's a, it's making the narrative landscape more complex rather than rewriting it or cutting things out. And that feels to me like an important piece of nuance to think about.
0: Ash, let's move now to talk to some of the specific mm-hmm. pieces. And uh, as always, it's incredibly difficult to um, select ones. This is a big book. I wish we could talk about all of the pieces, but I've just selected a few. So, and I've kept them in categories. So, the two essays that I want to start uh, talking about are Megan by Megan Davis and Taylor Reed, both of mm-hmm. whom you've just mentioned. So, Megan Davis, obviously, is the Australia's leading constitutional lawyer on Indigenous constitutional recognition. She's been integrally involved in these issues for many decades and she was very involved in the drafting and the preparation of the Uluru Statement from the heart. So she, her essay is called Speaking Up. And in that, she explains the context of the Uluru Statement, which was delivered on the 27th of May, 2017. And as you point out, she says that it's an invitation to meet. And she explains that reconciliation is the wrong framework because, as you say, and she said, First Nations and Australian people have never actually met. She also points out that it provides a roadmap mm. for, uh, for change. And it's a call for voice, treaty and truth in that order, and that's very significant. She writes quite a bit about truth commissions and mm. royal commissions, but in particular about truth commissions that have been uh, held in other countries. And she talks about her concerns with those, that they can, in fact, prioritise reconciliation over what is much more important, which is the pursuit of justice. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, about the concerns she raises about these truth commissions and why it's um they're not as important as the actual concrete pursuit of justice.
1: I think what was fascinating for me, and as you say, Megan is absolutely the leader in this field. Um, I think what was important for me, partly through uh, working with her on this piece, but also um, through other pieces in the book and working with Taylor, is, is understanding the importance of that order, voice, treaty, truth, and why that matters. That's not a three-word slogan where you can take bits out and move them around. It is that order Um, It is that sequence of steps in that order. The other thing that I found really exciting about this piece by Megan was the sense that whatever Australia creates in the truth-telling space has to be its own animal. So we understand little bits of things maybe about, you know, uh, commissions that have been held in South America or that have been held in South Africa, Um, you know, conversations that were held in Germany after the Second World War. And I think one of the great things that Megan does is she talks about uh, how we create a provincial truth-telling industry in Australia, which I liked as a line, um, and just why Australia's situation is different. Um, It's historical for a start. Um, It's also a space in which both sides need to be involved. This isn't just about asking um, or requesting or requiring First Nations Australians to tell their side of the story. This requires settler Australians, non-Indigenous Australians, to be involved as well. And I think that's probably, it goes back in some ways to the idea of of reckoning as being work that everybody needs to do, everybody needing to show up for this. I think um, there was a there's a real there's a there's something very galvanizing in understanding the true breadth of the invitation in not just in the Uluru statement, but in this in this commitment to truth telling for everyone and it is one of the spaces where you think if we if we could get this conversation right as a as a short recent um force of invasion and annexation laid over an incredibly long and continuous culture and set of practices and traditions what kind of shapes of potential and governance and justice and possibility might come out the other side of that. So one of the things I found really wonderful about Megan's piece was its sort of overview of a lot of other structures and um, institutions in other countries. And at each point she was kind of saying, but not like this for us, but not like this for us. We we can do this differently. And I think um, that is encouraging in and of itself.
0: And she emphasises that structural reform must come first. It must come before truth-telling. And the most important structural reform is a constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament. She says at one point, we don't need empathy, we need action. Mm -hmm. But she makes the point that out of 44 referenda that have been held in Australia, only eight of them have been successful. Mm -hmm. Would you like to talk a little bit about the importance of the idea of a voice to parliament as she sees it?
1: Well, I think it is um, it is something that is then beyond beyond governments and beyond who is in power at a particular time. Um, it is something that becomes um, a structure in and of itself. So, in terms of structural reform, um, it's a it's it's a it's a fantastic and massive intervention. I think the referendum question is interesting too, um, because as I understand it you know, yes, we don't have a really great record of um, accepting proposed changes to the constitution. Um, we are one of the least and we have one of the least amended constitutions in the world, um, which is interesting because it's also relatively recent. Um, but what I understand from people like Megan, from people like Thomas Mayer, who've done a lot of work around the allure Statement as well and who's also featured in this edition, there is phenomenal support for mm. this idea. Um,
0: mm. in the he, he mentioned something like 70% support. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I think it, it it matters. I mean, it is, as I say, it's a, it is a large structural um Gesture is the wrong word. It's a large step that can be taken. Um, And it puts all of those, um, it puts the idea of a voice beyond party politics, beyond who happens to be in government at what time. That feels like an important first step.
0: There's also another important point that Megan makes, which is echoed in Henry Reynolds' essay. Mm. She says, Australians must dispense with the false notion Mm -hmm. that we don't know who we are and that we weren't told. Would you like yes. to talk a bit about that?
1: I find this really um, a very powerful point. I'm just over 50 years old now and and I know the kind of education that I had about Australian settlement um, and I know how that has changed uh, over that 50 years. I can also remember when Henry Reynolds' book came out, <laughs> which was called Why were not Be Told. I think one of the things that is really intriguing, that's the wrong word, really confronting perhaps is When you read any historian's um, work around the frontier wars, around the very brutal waves of settlement across Australia, uh, when you read primary source material that they include, everybody did know what was going on. Um, You know, there there is a mountain of correspondence that comes back from various government departments in London questioning what is going on and, and calling it out. And I think, um, I think both as both Henry and Megan say, and it's part of that work of reckoning and part of that work of showing up, we, we don't, we can no longer say, oh, we're just recovering this story now and all of this is coming out in the open for the first time. In Queensland, which as Henry writes about in his piece, it has a particularly violent Um, frontier war going on Um, there is a lot of correspondence in newspapers about this there are people trying to call the government to account so Samuel Griffith during some of these times is the premier of Queensland Um, and this intersects with with all these all these different pieces of information that we do need to try to tease out the the point isn't that we didn't
0: know, the point is that we don't want to know. Um, uh, Henry Reynolds' piece, let's talk about that now, that's called Mm. On the Queensland Frontier, that's an essay as well, and he argues very powerfully, as you say, that the colonial government was directly involved, in particular in the way that it funded and administered the native Mm. mounted police, who were the ones that were ultimately responsible for the deaths of over 65,000 Indigenous people in Queensland in the second half of the 19th century. And he asks, how as we how have we as a nation overlooked these frontier wars? Why haven't we been talking about them? What does he give as an explanation, Ash?
1: Well, I think, you know, for a lot of people, uh, there was an expectation that the problem would go away and the problem would go away because there would be no one left, no one in terms of First Nations Australians. Um, this was... Uh, This was the received wisdom, which is very hard to understand and hard to accept now and also obviously not the case. So um, (laughs) it is is fairly horrifying to realise that the reason people with the power to stop what was happening didn't Stop what was happening was because they saw it as somehow inevitable, mm. and with only one end, mm. and that one end was them in power, them with land, them with resources, um, and and no First Nations population to have to think about. Now, I I I, um, I find that I find that almost, I mean, I just find it inconceivable. Um, but it's 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 um, and it's, it's even worse in a way then to know that there were people at the time saying this is inconceivable and yet it went on. The Native Mounted Police is an extraordinary organisation um, that goes around killing people. That is what it is sanctioned to do. Um, and, you know, some of the reports of the way that they were run and what they did. There's there's a lot of new scholarship coming out in this area as well now. And it is, um, yeah, it is is a piece of history that everybody needs to sit with and understand um, in the direct line that you can draw between that then and this now.
0: One of the points that Reynolds makes, which I thought was really interesting, is that he says that, having to face up to this, to this brutality would um, explode the myth that we all like to adhere to, that Australia had a peaceful history and that Australians have never killed each other. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's really crucial. <laughs> um, and I think one of the other pieces in the book um, is by Tom Griffiths, uh, who is a you know fantastically renowned historian who, works uh he's doing some work at the moment with the mythica people in the channel country in queensland the piece that he's written for us um, is some incredibly exciting work uncovering uh essentially a peace treaty that was negotiated between the mythica and the very early pastoralists in the late 1880s out there um, in mythica country and I, I heard tom talking about this on the radio just on the weekend and talking about the ways in which the pastoralists, you know, one of the reasons that they um, that they were keen to sign this, or not sign, but have this ceremony of goodwill and peace performed uh, was because there were ma- concerns about the operation of that um, native mounted police force. But the other was that they required the Mythica to survive out there. They required their labour. Mm. They required their knowledge. Mm. Um, they required their advice. <laughs> they required their guidance. They they required all of this. And I I think, um, I think it is this there's this incredible tension in this story of, of annexation and invasion, which you know, we're, we're only just starting to sort of hear more of those stories of the requirement of the, the notionally more powerful people on, on the people that they're trying to dispossess. That's as important a part of the story to tell as the horrific violence that goes on in some of these places. It's it's yeah, as it's it's everywhere. And I I, I think it's not these are not pleasant stories to hear you know something like tom's story about recovering what you know what the the white settlers called the debney peace this is an amazing story i think the title is treaty we already had a treaty we already had a treaty and this was how he you know first heard about it in the consultations in queensland towards treaty now there was a meeting. There was a community consultation, and someone at the back of the room put up their hand out there in the Channel Country and said, "But we've already got a treaty. It's in mm-hmm. Alice's book." And so, mm-hmm.
0: talk a little bit about that. What did that mean? It's in our Al- so it's not actually written down as a treaty, formal legal document. No. Who's Alice and what's her book?
1: Alice Duncan Kemp is her name. Um, she grew up out in the Channel Country. She is uh, she is born after this ceremony is performed, but she grows up. Uh, learning equally from um, her non-Indigenous teachers and the mythic of people. And she has a, you know, a really close um, and very sort of nurturing and supportive relationship with, with a whole lot of adults around her who obviously treat her very well and trust her with a lot of information. And when she grows up, she starts to write these things down. Um, and talking to Tom about, you know, the, the record of the ceremony, of the Debney piece, which is in one of the books that Alice publishes about this place um, throughout the course of her life talking with Tom about this ceremony, talking with other historians as well, they make the point that these aren't documents that are written down. these are not things that are going to be found in a particular kind of archive but they are in oral history archives mm. and so when we uh, when we have more conversations, Tom's theory is that there would have been a lot of these agreements made mm. across Australia, and I think that as well is um, it does not remove, you know, the amount of structural change that we need to go through and, and the other things that we have in play, you know, following through this three-step mechanism of the invitation of the Uluru Statement. But I do think it is it is a fascinating thought that, you know, yes, we need to look uh, with a lot more clarity and honesty at the violence of what was going on but also there are these other stories and and the opportunity of discovering and celebrating those is very exciting as well
0: ash let's talk about the essay by teela reed who as you mm-hmm. say is one of the contribute or is the contributing essay mm-hmm. sorry let's start again let's talk now about the essay by teela reed who is as you say the contributing editor to this edition I really loved this essay right from the title, which is called The Power of the First Nations Matriarchy. So she starts by saying that not every First Nations woman is a matriarch. It's a sign of respect that's bestowed only on some First Nations Mm -hmm. women. And she talks about those that have an enduring love for blackfellas. And she speaks about the moral obligation to remember them. Talks about women such as Mum Sherl, Faith Bandler, Ujiru, Nunakul, the latter two who were very involved in the fight for the 1967 referendum that we've mentioned. And she makes the point that so far anyway, women seem to be very much the driving force behind the Uluru statement as well. Mm. I wondered if you just wanted to talk about some of the women that Teela talks about in her essay.
1: I think, I, I love this. So this is the third um, essay that we've worked on with Taylor, And as you say, it was fantastic to have her as the contributing editor for this book in terms of the pieces she commissioned. I love that she talks about love in this particular essay. There is a lot of love in a lot of pieces in this book, which is, um, which is really gorgeous and it's one of, and important as well, it's one of Taylor's observations that so many of the First Nations writers in this book uh, writing very generous pieces which explore different kinds of love and potential and the anger and the demands for change in this particular collection often come from the non-Indigenous authors, which, you know, is very moving, uh, well, it's very moving in general, but I know was something that Teela really responded to as a reader. Yes, she does talk about people like Mum Shirl and Faith Bandler um the women I always think of when I think of Taylor are her grandmother, Stella oh. May, and her great grandmother Elsie May. I've, I have I have met them in other pieces, no, in other pieces of work of Teela's. Um, and I know the central role that they played in her life. Um she, she didn't meet Elsie May, but she she got the stories um from her grandfather, who's a figure she wrote about in the first essay that she ever did for us but Stella May uh, her grandmother and the way that Taylor describes growing up Stella May is she's a figure of authority she's a figure of knowledge um, she is the person who brews up um, the medicine that people need. She's the person who knows the three different ways that you can make everything depending on, you know, what's wrong with you and how you need to take it. She is she is absolutely um, central to this whole community and one of the lovely things that Taylor says about her is she talks about her graciousness in holding space for others, this, this extraordinary generosity. She talks about the importance of silence, the importance of listening, um, just, just very different ways of wielding power, maybe. I thought that, I just wanted to <laughs> stop you at that last point because I thought that was really interesting. She
0: mm. says it's not, I, she doesn't in any way want to step back from the power of speaking up, which is, of course, the title yes. of Megan Davis's essay. So she's not resiling from that. Yeah. But she says she learnt from her grandmother the power of silence, of staying silent. And I thought that was really fascinating. Mm.
1: And I think this idea of holding space—I mean, this is essentially part of the work of reckoning as well—is of everybody holding space for these other stories, um, for the stories that are not theirs. Um, you know, it is a—it is an incredibly powerful um, invitation. Again, there's that word again. I think to uh, one of the other people who comes up in um, in Taylor's uh, beautiful essay and appears in. A couple of the other pieces in the book is distinguished professor Eileen Morton Robinson, sorry Eileen Morton Robinson, whose uh, book "Talking Up to the White Woman" was reissued last year. Now, this is really seminal work on the intersections between um, First Nations scholarship and thinking and uh, non-indigenous feminism I guess um, and it's it's central to what Teela's writing about it comes up in Marinda Dutton's piece as well I think it's referenced in um, in a couple of the other pieces in the edition Just making a point about different kinds of power, different kinds of feminism I think Teela would probably think that was not quite the right word um, I guess that's my word for it but and just the power of these matriarchal, Systems um, and as you say, that are operating, you know, not just at the sort of domestic and local level of someone like Stella May and the care she takes in her community, but all the way up through to the people who were involved in formulating and presenting um, the Uluru Statement back in 2017. And I'm going to come back to something, I think this is what you were touching on.
0: Teela writes about the role that white women have played in colonisation, and she, she specifically says don't call me a feminist, basically said, I don't want to be called a feminist. Mm -hmm. She says, I see the world from the standpoint of our First Nations matriarchs. Would you like to talk a little bit about what Teela says about the role of white women in perpetuating the colonising, the colonisation?
1: I think her point is primarily that um, non-Indigenous women in Australia have to own their own role in colonisation. You know, yes. Um, a lot of the decisions were being made by men in power, um, but it is it is absolutely natural to want to sort of find those points of um, empathy and uh, an alliance. But it is to say you can't. You know, there are differences here. There are points of difference, and yes, there are there are structures um, that have. That have been upset and changed around f- feminism, um, which are fantastic. But there are other structures that you need to look at here, and also that a First Nations matriarchy is not a carbon copy of what white women think of and expect in the context of feminism. So again, it's these nuances, it's these complexities, it's the power um, and the impetus of you know a lot of the work that these women doing. And I think it's really important to uh, acknowledge and explore the differences as well as the intersections in terms of different groups that are trying to achieve structural change in different
0: ways. And of course, uh, she is also, Taylor is a passionate advocate for the constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament. Uh, and she says that, fighting for that, in fighting for that, she's inspired by these First Nations matriarchs that have come before. And I love this quote. She says, this is the reckoning, the words meeting action that Mm -hmm. our nation so desperately needs. Mm -hmm. Let's move now to memoir. I'd like us to talk about David Denver's piece, which is called Mm -hmm. Writing Back. He, of course, is the great, great grandson of Samuel Griffiths, as we mentioned earlier. And he's been inspired to reconnect with his past, I suppose you'd say, by a conversation he had with an Indigenous woman called Jane who spoke to him about the importance of kind of owning his own history, I think. Mm. Now, in doing that, he was influenced by the concept of the everywhere. Could you talk to us a bit about that? What is that?
1: So the every comes out of um, the work of W.H. Stanner, um, who lots of people or um, we'll know from Boyer lectures and his kind of anthropological work in the or oh, where is that 1960s. Um, and it was the, his original work was around uh, looking at non the difference between indigenous and non-indigenous concepts of time. And the idea of everyone was his way of, of trying to say to non-indigenous Australians, this thing that you call the dreaming, is not the past. It's not something that happened way back then. It is the past, the present, and the future. It is it, these these delineations, these sort of three stripes or three, you know, parts of the plat don't exist in this world. Um, it is everywhere. It is always.
0: So it's a continuum, isn't it? It's as if time is a continuum.
1: Yes, and um, which it is <laughs> essentially. Um, and I think what it means. To me, we have a beautiful essay um, by the Guri writer Michaela Saunders in this edition about the everyone from her perspective. Uh, I think um, David's sense of it is probably quite like my sense of it, which is to say it's it's another way of, of approaching what we might think of as history in the past as something that is still active in the present, which in Australia, <laughs> again, you're back to that point of the need to take responsibility for it, to reckon with it. Um, for me, it seems like a really useful way of collapsing any possibility of saying those things happened 200 years ago, they are not to do with me maybe that my family was involved well, maybe my family wasn't even in australia at that time i don't have to think about it now for david denbra and i love that when jane lester made this invitation to him and it's a, it's a, you know it's a lot of years ago now she didn't know who his uh forebears were So she didn't know that she was inviting him to think about Sir Samuel Griffith, twice Premier of the Colony of Queensland, um, Attorney General of the Colony of Queensland, very major architect of Australia's constitution, first Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. She didn't know that that's who she was talking about. On David's other side of the family, he's also related to, um, you know, one of the very prominent um, early Pastoral families in Queensland. So she didn't have this context, but he knew. Um, and he he started to write these letters to Sir Samuel Griffith and in fact to a lot of a lot of people um, from sort of further back in his family. Now he he published a book of these letters, uh, I can't remember now if it was last year or the year before. And they're very moving documents. David also works in a field called narrative therapy, which is a space that really interests
0: me. He works in mental health, doesn't he? Yeah, and he does. I, I just want to go back a moment to what this concept of the everyone and something yeah. that you said. And it's a point that he makes. He says, and I think he just puts it very nicely when he looks back on Sam, Samuel Griffiths and what he may have known or been involved uh, with or condoned, he says, however, there's no place for moral superiority. Like, I, I don't. And can't feel any moral superiority to you because colonial violence is ongoing and he just gives as examples he talks about police brutality he talks yeah. about the prisons being full of juvenile indigenous people he talks about yeah. education and that leads him to think that he needs to be active that he needs to take action in the present um in collaboration with First Nations friends and colleagues. And that leads him to talk about this concept of narrative therapy, which he describes as an anti-colonial alternative to Western psychology. Can you just tell us about that, Ash? What is this narrative therapy?
1: Well, I think it's it's a just it's a but it's just, just is the wrong word. It's a different way of telling your own story, it's a different way of exploring. Of exploring your past, yourself, whatever it is, to the ways offered by Western psychology. And there is, you know, there is a lot of interesting work um, in play in Australia around decolonizing psychology. It's something that we've explored in earlier editions of Griffith Review as well. Where I think um, this gets interesting for David, you know, this is his, this is his, one of a series of his letters to Sir Samuel Griffith, but it's only in this letter that he explores the interface between his professional life in narrative therapy and the work that he is doing in writing to Sir Samuel. So as a reader, to me, I could sort of see this overlay from the first place when I began to talk to David about whether he would contribute something to this collection. I find it incredibly moving that for him this was the first time he brought this professional strand of his life, which I think is a really interesting one in the greater context of national narratives and reckoning and all the things we've been talking about through this conversation into this conversation with Sir Samuel Griffith. I think, too, um, in terms of the permission that Griffith Review has to explore Sir Samuel's life, um, there there is a lot of scholarship to be done on Sir Samuel. There are a lot of archives. You know, I hope that this is a kind of a beginning point and that there will be a lot more to come in this space. Um, There are historians who've been working on Sir Samuel for a long time who still can go into the archives and and find new things, which is exciting. Um, But also I loved that we could bring in this very other perspective of David, his professional background in narrative therapy, his personal connection to Sir Samuel, to make this kind of intervention in our reconsideration of Sir Samuel and his life and his legacies, that felt to me like a really a really central part of the work that this book could do.
0: Ash, let's talk now about the in conversations in the book, mm. which, were I thought incredibly rich they always are but particularly so in this case so we'll start with the one between uh, Patrick Dodson and Bridget Karma so Patrick Mm -hmm. Dodson of course has been the federal senator for Western Australia since 2016 as well as a prominent land rights activist and Bridget Karma is a graduate First Nations constitutional lawyer and they are reflecting a bit on the Whitlam era in the context of the 50th anniversary next year of Whitlam's appointment. And that's something else that I gather that Griffith Review is working on with the Whitlam Institute. Patrick Dodson talks a bit about Whitlam's legacy in the context of work with Indigenous people. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? What, what, what does he see as the great contributions that Gough Whitlam made in the Indigenous space?
1: I think one of the most powerful things um, in the conversation, and yes, this is the second in our series with the Whitlam Institute. We'll have one in each edition this year, but one of the most powerful things that um, Patrick Dodson said, (laughs) well, apart from, um, I think he called it the cataclysmic change of Gough Whitlam arriving. You know, he said it was like a whirlwind. This this man turned up and things happened, which I loved as a description. Um, But he talked about the importance of Whitlam's focus on international law and and the sense of, you know, the 67 referendum had gone through, there was a lot of change that needed to happen um, on the other side of that. And um, and there was a sense that it wasn't happening fast enough. So Whitlam arrives. You know, he has the great cabinet of two um, for the first you know couple of weeks of the government, and and just this sense of you know everybody knowing that these changes have to happen. And he comes in and he just gets to work. But the sense that he refers to it a couple of times. This this sense that Whitlam had of the importance of international law and the. The ways this opened up space for so many First Nations um, advocates and campaigners to understand what they were trying to achieve and what they were trying to change in an international context, it, it, that felt so powerful that it wasn't just that there was change happening in Australia and Whitlam, you know, certainly Whitlam's government drove through a lot of reform um, in terms of racial discrimination, in terms of, you know, getting very early land rights moves underway. One of the the, the big things that, um, the big differences that was obvious between uh, the times that Senator Dodson was reflecting on around Whitlam and the space that Bridget Karma works in now as uh, someone very inv- young involved in the again, the Uluru Statement, it was the difference between the perception of these international mechanisms. They were very powerful for Gough Whitlam. He used them very particularly. And for Senator Dodson, you know, that had been a real invitation to see not just change at a local level, but the way the the local situation for Australia's First Nations people sat in a global context. Bridget Karma spoke a little bit about um, some of the disillusion. Uh, Mm. that exists now Mm. in that space Um, you know the sense that you know yes there can be all these big big sort of shiny international commitments made but they're not really connecting to anything real and realizable at a domestic level Um, so that was that was one interesting facet of it you know we all know the famous photo of Gough Whitlam and Vincent Lignari we know we know that image that moment um, and as Senator Dodson said too, and it's something that actually comes up in the next conversation that we have under the kind of auspices of this Whitlam Institute collaboration, it, because of the shortness of that government, there were a lot of things that um, Whitlam's government had intended to do, which were then carried on.
0: I had not realised that that conversation had started back all those years ago. Yeah, One important point that Bridget makes about this, uh, the constitutional reform, the enshrining Mm -hmm. of a voice for parliament is, and I think this is a really important one, that this is so important because it's a means of self-determination for First Nations people. It's just basically giving them a say in issues that affect them. She says very powerfully, we aren't a problem and we shouldn't be treated as one. It's time our constitution reflected that. And she goes on to say, the voice won't solve all problems, but it is a way to ensure self-determination and to provide equity. And then she she uses that great expression that there'll be no peace without justice.
1: Mm.
0: and And she said that, I thought this was interesting. I wondered if you had any comment on it, that to her, looking back, the most important thing that Whitlam did was that he ensured access to fairness and equity, and these were the things that were the most important to her. Would you like to comment on on that?
1: I think when you think about what fairness and equity mean, um, I think because they operate or they should operate in absolutely every space. So something that Bridget returned to a number of times in the conversation that we had were the, was the opportunities that she had, which would not have been available to her parents and would not have been available were it not for this, um, this absolute commitment to fairness and equity. Now, that's not to say, of course, that we've achieved fairness and equity across the board, but just I, I found it really powerful her sort of saying, you know, I've benefited from all of these things, you know, which generations of people before me did not have the privilege of. I am in this position um, and therefore what I have to do now is keep working to expand equity and fairness and opportunity um, for the next the next generations it is this sort of ongoing thing but I think you know we think about Whitlam in the context of access to education or in the context of um, women's rights or whatever it is all of these things are equity and what they do is open up opportunity and I think um, watching Bridget connect the dots between things she had been able to do the space that she found herself in professionally how she could then use those skills to keep these things going that was very very powerful and a powerful part of that conversation so let's
0: make as our final topic there's a couple we won't get to we won't get to the wonderful fiction by melissa lukashenko and others we won't get to the wonderful poetry we won't get to the beautiful um visual art in this volume Mm -hmm. i'm sorry for that but uh (laughs) listeners i urge you to buy the book and uh and dip into that yourselves the last uh piece of writing that I'd like to talk about is the conversation between Curly Saunders, writer and artist, with Lily Brown and Genevieve Greaves, who are both First Nations facilitators, mm-hmm. who run an organisation called Shifting Ground, which works with organisations and individuals to foster decolonizing practices. Mm-hmm. And their uh, conversation is called Radical Hope in the Face of Dehumanisation. I just want to talk Basically, about those two concepts, starting with decolonisation. Genevieve says this decolonisation is shared labour. It's not our work alone, it's all of our work to dismantle it. And they talk specifically, they talk generally about the dehumanisation of First Nations people, but they, just by way of example, talk about the way that young Indigenous people um, interact with the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, about that as as one example of the dehumanization of First Nations people.
1: Well, I think I mean, this is central again to Uluru, isn't it? There's that amazingly powerful section um, which talks about um, the phenomenal overrepresentation of indigenous youth in Australia's criminal justice system. This is a really um, central issue, and Lily Brown, Makes the point, which you know, you have to keep making over and over again about the number of First Nations oh. people who have died in custody since the Royal Commission—over 500—and yeah. and that's you know, and that is one of those numbers that it is in so many stories, it's in so many conversations, and you do just have to keep saying it again and again to draw attention to it. She talks to, um, she was working and living in the Kimberley. Um, she talks about the youth problem, you know, the youth problem that is described up there the enormous numbers of resources of police that are sent up to you know public funds to fund more police in this place to deal with this youth problem um and it's it's it it, it is again this invitation to say. If you frame this problem as a problem, and if you try to um, apply this solution, and you've been doing this for this many years, and at this cost, and and you can see what the outcomes are, is it not time to to break to break this habit in a sense to sort of shift shift the context? I think um, that is a that to me was a really powerful um, a really powerful example of dehumanisation. You keep framing the problem in the same way, applying the same solution with the same outcome, which is not a solution, that in no way acknowledges any of the people who are involved in this situation in any, you know, at any level, the, the, the young people themselves, their parents, you know, their broader communities, you have to actually just stop and 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 intervene somehow and do something differently.
0: As they talk about this beautiful concept of what they describe as active hope or radical hope, what are they? What do they mean by that?
1: I love this idea. It's it's um, an idea that comes out uh, is, is referred to a lot in uh, climate justice and in conversations about climate change. Um, and for me, it's it's sort of partly about you know thinking about hope like a muscle, something that you have to actively. Um, exercise and one of the things that you know I love these three powerhouse women talking about you know how they exercise this muscle for themselves and it is about conversations that they have there's a beautiful part of this exchange where Curly is saying to Lily and Jen you know just what a nourishing and hopeful thing it is for her to have this conversation you know for us with the two of them but it is about it's about connection to culture it's about time it's about relationship it's about it's about pausing the work that you're doing and and picking up other parts of um other parts of work and other parts of creativity and other other sort of cultural connections one of them i think it's um i think it's genevieve Talks about um, a, a gathering that she'd been at with a group of First Nations artists, and they were dancing, and they were weaving, and they were yarning, and they were singing, and they were making making possum, possum skin skins cloaks. And it's just this beautiful moment where you know they are they are away from their everyday life and the work that all of them do very important and powerful work in terms of education, in terms of decolonization. but. But this work together in this space, in this sort of connection and celebration, it is as critical to them being able to do the work of education and the work of decolonization as any of the sort of academic thinking that they do or the advocacy that they do. I think there's something incredibly important in all of that. And I think, I mean, this is something that comes through. I mentioned earlier this idea of love and and sort of generosity. Um, it. it it, it, there's something in this too of, of coming back to, to very personal and local level connections and understanding the power in making those connections, the power in, in the work that you can do at that level. Um, we, I think we sort of think of work as, as the hard stuff, but part of what is wonderful about the idea of radical hope is the work is all of the stuff. It is, it is the nurturing and the caring and the connecting and the exchanging all the way up to, you know, the big structural change that has to be achieved. There's something in the idea of reckoning as well to think, well, what is the most local level that I can work at here? You know, who are, what are the stories I need to explore? What's the work I need to do in my landscape, in my community with the people that I know? How can I make space for that and then build it up? There's, you know, this comes into some of the things that Megan Davis is talking about. It's really present in Teela's work. Um, It comes into so many of the different essays in this collection and I think Radical Hope, we ended up putting the conversation between Curly Saunders and Millie Brown and Jen Greaves as the, Um, towards the end of the book, because we wanted people, you know, if they're reading from start to finish, that they walk into this sense of opportunity and possibility and nourishment and joy as part of the work that they can take up as well. Ash, that seems like a great
0: place to end. Thank you so much for talking to me today about Griffith Review 76 Acts of Reckoning. Thank Thank you, Thank you,
1: Nick. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books.
0: If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleaberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.